going to do for, for my wife, um, Meredith, who is actually home sick today with the kids. Happy Mother's Day. Um, and uh, and I, we started talking about what we were going to do, and I, and I started thinking, you know, I got a little thought about parenting. Now, I know it's not a word about Mother's Day per se. And so I'm not a mother. I was birthed by a mother, which is wonderful. But I'm not a mother. But I thought by, by way of, of, of thinking about Mother's Day, I'd share a word with you about parenting. Because I, I came to a point. We have an 8-year-old and a 5-year-old. And we had a 5-year-old Star Wars birthday party um, yesterday. And uh, I was, I'm at this place where I think I finally got it. Like, for the first four years of my son's life, I just felt like he was crazy out of control. But now I think he finally gets me as dad, and we're starting to really connect. And he understands all the things that we've been teaching and all the think, ways that we've been loving on it. My eight-year-old girl starting to get it. And I looked around yesterday and I thought, I've done it. I mean, I have done it. And then Meredith hands me this piece of paper that came home from preschool, right, that Cooper has laminated, and it says, my father, and this is what Cooper thinks of his dad, right? And he shattered all my dreams of the fact that I thought I had figured it out. But let me share with you what Cooper thinks of his dad, and this is dated on 4-13-2010, so this is relatively new, right? It's laminated, so you know it's going to last for eternity. So it says, is Cooper age four, he says, what is your dad's name? My dad's name is, is Treb. My dad is 40 years old. Some of you aren't laughing. That's not funny. Um, My dad weighs 100 pounds. I was thinking, in my right leg, I weigh 100 pounds. But I started off going, it's all right. You know, I'm skinny. I'm old. But, you know, old, old, old at 40, right? My dad's favorite food is chili soup. I don't even like chili. I can't remember the last time I've had soup was either. But nonetheless... My dad likes to go to work all day. Lovely that I, he's, that's what he remembers. Not coach's soccer team, not assistant coach T-ball, not wipe his little hiney, but my dad likes to go to work all day, right? My dad doesn't like to wear his big pink shirt that my mom bought him. I didn't even know he heard that argument, but nonetheless, he heard it. Uh, he does not like to wear his big pink shirt, all right? I love my dad because he makes nachos and soup. <laughs> really? That's why you love me? When's the last time you made nachos? Oh. I don't even know where to begin. What do you need to know when you become a dad? You need to know how to go to Walmart. Not pay the bills, mow the yard, but you got to be able to go to Walmart. I think he hears all the time, run to Walmart. All right. If I could give my dad any special present, it would be a drum set and a microphone to play on stage. As if I don't have enough kind of uh, need for attention problems as it is, I need to be a rock star. So I love this picture of me. I'm 40 years old. I weigh 100 pounds. I can make mean nachos. I spend most of my time at Walmart wishing I was a rock star. I mean, that is what Coop thinks of me. And I thought, I am failing. Parenting. It's all just a facade anyway, right? It's a bunch of games we play for each other. We're just making this stuff up as we go. Um, But I thought, you know, for those of you that are mothers out there, we, uh, you know, this day really is a celebration of, of all of that um, that your kids um, think. And all those years that you spend doing all these things for your, your kid to think that your whole life is wrapped up in your ability to go to Walmart or whatever. So 
Um, anyway, that really doesn't have anything to do with anything. I just kind of thought it was interesting. But uh, I've been struck lately, actually a lot lately, about thinking about the church. Um, I've been kind of been confronted um, in a lot of different circumstances with uh, a picture of the church. And sometimes the ugly realities that happen when you begin to live as the body of Christ, if you will. And, and I heard a sermon by a pastor preached uh, really recently, actually. And, and he was preaching on the fact trying to, to challenge his congregation to return to the early church. That if as a congregation we could get back to the New Testament church, if we could just get back there, then we would truly be living as the body of Christ. And I understand the truth in, in what he's saying. I mean, I get it. There's, there's a picture of the church in Acts chapter 2 where they're sharing life and sharing everything and taking on each other's needs that there really is an amazing picture of community. But, but as I really examine Scripture, and as I really look at the church in the first century, the church in the first century is really flawed. I mean, it's made up of individuals with all kinds of, of issues and struggles and, and whatnot. And I thought, you know, the, the answer really is not how do we get back to the first century church, but, but really the question is, is how do we live as a biblical church in the 21st century? So right here where we are, how do we live as a biblical church without longing to be something else that, that really wasn't perfect in its own right? Um, how do we live as, as the biblical church in the, in the 21st century? And you can go to any Christian bookstore and find rows and rows and rows of books that attempt on some level to answer this. But that's essentially the question. How do we remain a biblical church in the 21st century? And I thought this morning what we do by way of, of examining that question is look at the church in Corinth as a lens sort of of how we examine our own existence as the church, and really what it means to have our eyes focused on Jesus Christ and living as a biblical church in the 21st century. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's some later around. We've got them back here. You're welcome to, to help yourself. The way our Bibles work really here is if you need it, keep it. We want you to have it. If, uh, if you don't have it, if you don't have one, hang on to it. Um, if you have one, leave it here, and, and we'll use it again um, next week. But Let's, uh, let's pray together and then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather here in, in this, your presence this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to be here and the fact that you love us and call us into relationship with you. God, we thank you that we're men and women from all walks of life that are gathered here, um, Father, living for you. God, take a moment and just prepare our hearts, God, to hear your word today. Take just a second right where you sit and just invite God to move in you. Just invite God to, to open your heart to um, a new picture of his character this morning. Pray for someone beside you, um, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't recognize them or know their name, just pray. Just ask God to move in them, just by way of, of praying for the people around you. Father God, we are grateful, and we ask that you would allow your word to become alive. You tell us that it's living and active, sharp than any double-edged sword. Use it to penetrate our lives. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, challenge us where we need to be challenged. In the name of Jesus, amen. So before we jump into 1 Corinthians 1, let me give you a little background on the church in Corinth. I mean, Corinth as a town, geographically, was really a, a hotbed of cultural and religious activity. Its location on a major trade route 
made it a city where all kinds of new religious and cultural trends were coming through all the time. It had a reputation for being kind of a wicked city. Um, There were 26 holy places in that city. Most of them were temples to gods or goddesses in the the Greek world. The most famous was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, who was the the Greek goddess of love. In the evening, over a hundred temple prostitutes would come down from that temple and flood the city streets as a way of worship, if you will. The Greeks had even developed a a phrase, to live like a Corinthian. You know, like if I could just live like a Corinthian, that sort of wild, kind of extravagant, on the trendy, cutting edge of what is cultural and religious kind of things that were happening in the world. That was the town of of Corinth. It was a metropolitan mecca of ideas and, and things along those lines. The church in Corinth, on the other hand, was founded by Paul himself. Much like many of the early first century churches, Paul founded the church, and it was really called to live in direct opposition to this culture. I mean, it was was put in the middle of this area, living in opposition to this cultural flow of, of ideas and religion and things. And the church really was alive and vibrant and growing. It was doing amazing things and was seeing a lot of new believers, most of which were non-Jewish or Gentile converts. They were, they were Greeks. They were non-Jewish people that were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being transformed and living as the community of God in the middle of this city of Corinth. The church, however, has got a struggle, as we're going to look at today in, in chapter 1. And, and 1 Corinthians 1 is really written as, as Paul's rebuking to the struggle that the church was having there in the city of Corinth. So if you've got your Bible, let's flip to 1 Corinthians 1, start in verse 10 and read down through 18. This is Paul um, speaking to the church in Corinth in this letter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the, same, or in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas. And still another says, I follow Christ. Is it Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I not baptized any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you are baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas, but... Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words or human wisdoms. Let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What we see in 1 Corinthians is Paul actually writing a response to some divisions that were happening in the early church. And that word divisions is actually the Greek word schismata, which we get the English derivative from schism. But, but that Greek word doesn't really mean what it means in English. In English it kind of means divided in two, two factions or two parties, really split down the middle, um, a schism. But the schismata, the word really means a tear, or almost as if it's used in the terms of plowing a field. It means that there begins to get a rift in something. It's not a, a classical kind of split, as you will, but it's, it's a small tear or a plowing. It's a, a schismata. Now, why is this important? It's important because the way that we think about the word division in the church is really, really a giant split. Like, you say it's okay to dance. 
we think it's not okay to dance. We're going to start our own church, and we're going to do our own thing, and we split. And we form our own church based on our opinion on X, Y, and Z, and you do the same thing based on X, Y, and Z. And these divisions cause literal splits. But what's happening in Corinth is, is that there seems to be no fundamental argument in the theology that Jesus Christ is God's son, raised from the dead, died for the sins. It seems to be something else going on here. It seems to be an identity problem. And they're beginning to have these schismatas, these tears, these small rifts that are beginning to grow in the people as they begin to focus on things and identifying themselves with people other than Christ. So what are these things? Because actually it's really interesting. And this is what Paul says. He says, I've heard from Chloe's house, right, some people in this household, that there's some divisions among you. And what I mean is that some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollo. Some of you are saying, I follow Cephas. And others are saying, I follow Christ. Well, what's happening in the church is that they've begun to lose sight of their calling and they're identifying themselves with people as a way of defining what they are believing. And so these are important. So let's unpack them kind of quickly. But he says, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Now you've got to remember, Paul was the founder of this church. There's an emotional tie to Paul. Paul was also sort of cutting edge in his theology and way of thinking. I mean, Paul was taking the gospel to the Gentiles in a way that the Jewish believers weren't really comfortable with. Paul had a fresh way of looking at the law. In a lot of ways, Paul was trendy, if you will, in his approach to how he shared and presented and lived the gospel. And people that were there in Corinth were emotionally tied to Paul. They had, had probably been led to Christ, or God had used Paul to lead them to Christ. And so there was a, a tie there that people said, I follow this guy named Paul. He's on the edge of doing things that are new, that are not stodgy, that are, are powerful, and, and he was a part of my spiritual journey. And you can see how it'd be really easy to identify with this. I mean, you know, we become emotionally attached to that pastor of our church for X number of years, or, or maybe we want to be a part of something that's new and on the edge and trendy and, and not sort of the way it's always been done. And so we begin to say, Paul's got it right. And I'm going to follow his way of thinking about the gospel. Now, it's important to know that though Paul and Apollos and Cephas, who we'll talk about in a little bit, none of these people are, are really identified with these movements at all. The church just seems to have attached itself to these names. So you can see how it might be easy to say, you know, I want to follow Paul. He's kind of doing it, you know. And, uh, and then some were saying, no, I follow Apollos. And Apollos was a... Uh, he was from Alexandria, and Alexandria was sort of the intellectual capital, if you will, of the Greek world. Um, it was where all the smart people hung out, right? It was where I'd probably never go, but it's where all the smart people hung out. And Acts chapter 18 actually tells us that Apollos was an eloquent speaker. So Apollos is smart, he's brilliant, and he's a gifted communicator. He is a preacher, and he is good. And people can identify with that. They want to hear great teaching and preaching. They want to hear from someone that uses fancy words and has got a PhD behind their name and, and understands what they're talking about and can, can wrap them and, and up emotionally and preach a word that is, that is powerful. And it would be easy to see how people could say, man, I identify with this Apollos character. I mean, he's smart. He's from Alexandria. He's a preacher. He's good. I mean, we do that in our churches, right? I mean, we associate with pastors quickly or great communicators or even bands. You've heard people say, oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to so-and-so's church, you know, like it's theirs. Like I identify with the person, whether it's a worship leader, whether it's a great 
pastor, whoever, I go to their church. We begin to associate with that personality, that dynamic kind of personality, really quickly. And so you can see how people would say, you know, I'm a little bit intellectual, and I really want to be taught the gospel, taught the word, and, and everybody else is preaching around here kind of dumbs it down a little bit, or, the, you know, it's just not the same. And so I follow Apollos. You didn't see that. Some of them were saying, I follow Cephas, and Cephas is really just an Aramaic word for Peter. So they're saying, I follow Peter. In other words, you know, Peter was one of the 12 disciples. I mean, he walked with Jesus. This is the guy that got his words straight from the mouth of Christ himself. And, and, and Peter represented the Jewish tradition. Peter, for a lot of people, represented the way we've always done things and, and the gospel picture that's tied up in the law and what that might look like. There's a tradition to Peter. There's a richness to Peter that goes back a little bit farther than just 12 or 15 or 20 years, but that goes back thousands of years. There's a picture of Peter that, that sort of has, this is what the church is built on, this tradition and, and, and it's intermingling with the gospel. I mean, you could see that, right? I mean, this is, this is one of the original disciples. It's easy to see how people would say, you know, I identify with that, the tradition and, and, and richness and legacy of, of, of Peter. We do that in our churches, right? I mean, we identify quickly with the way things have, have been um, tied in, of course, not theologically different, but tied into how we live and, and we become to be attached to, to those things. And so you can see how we could quickly say, man, it's, it's Peter. He's living it right. I mean, he's living the gospel really attached to, to the, the tradition and, and not doing things that are off the handle like, like Paul over here spending all his time in the Greek world. But Peter's focused on, on, on Jewish believers and, and how we, we celebrate the law in the midst of that. You can see that. Some were still saying, I follow Christ. And this isn't the group of people that were, you know, their fault is not that they say, I belong to Christ, but it said that Christ kind of belongs to them. There are those people in the church that, that really thought they were the only ones that got it. That everybody else in this kind of group of people was just sort of missing the point. And we're the only true Christians in Corinth. I mean, our churches are filled with, with people like that. that they, they look around at everybody else with a sort of righteousness that says, how come I'm the only one here that really understands the gospel and all of you guys are missing it and you just show up on, on uh, Christmas and Easter and, and, and then the, and this little group of us, I mean, we're doing it. We really follow Christ. That sort of self-righteousness that says, how am I the only one that gets it? And we they stand off in your little self-righteous circles and you, and you look at everybody else in your, your little groups, your little communities, and you just wonder why they're here. You know, if, when you really begin to examine these, and of course we, we're reading a lot into these things, but there's, there's a lot of truth packed in there. But when we really begin to examine these things, we begin to realize that the first century church isn't really all that different than the 21st century church. It's made up of humans with a lot of flaws. Um, messed up. The picture is not that as a church we need to return to the first century as if they had it figured out in perfection. The call of the church is really to figure out how to live biblically. And you know what would make a really great message right now is if what I were to say to you is I were to say, you know what, and as the church, we need to be tolerant of each other's differences. That we all come with different thoughts and feelings and that we just need to, to overlook and focus on the big things. Then make a pretty decent little message and we can all walk out of here feeling really good. The problem is, is that's not what Paul does at all. Paul actually says this. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers, that you may be perfectly united, that you may agree and be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
See, for a lot of us, we think that unity in the, in the, in the gospel-centered church is un, impossible. But from a biblical perspective, it's really not. The church has really lost its focus on what really counts. And that's what happened in the first century. They'd lost their focus on what it meant to understand and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they begin to identify with the things on the outside, the peripheral things that are out there that they attach themselves to and have forgotten their true love. And Paul says the answer and and redemption of the church does not lie in the fact that we've all just got to understand that we need to get along. Redemption in the church is realizing that we've got to agree on our true love. Paul doesn't look at any of these groups and say, they've got it right, get in line with them. He says, you've all missed it, period. The church needs to refocus itself on what really counts and begin to follow Jesus together. Verse 18 is really powerful here. And it says this. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know what the message of the cross is? It's redemption and life in Jesus Christ alone. As simple as you want to put it, that is the message of the cross. Redemption and life in, the, in, in, in Christ alone, in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Somewhere along the way, whether it started in the first century or, or today, the church, we've allowed ourselves to become hijacked by the things that don't matter. And I'm not saying it's not important to think about ways that we present the gospel and ways that we do worship and who our pastors and leaders. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that somewhere along the way, we've allowed ourselves to be hijacked, focusing on the things that distract our attention from the message of the cross. And I think it's the greatest tool of the enemy, that the greatest tool of the enemy is to distract the church that the church in Corinth had begun to quarrel amongst themselves over who they identified with and had forgotten their call to the world. And I look at our church, Big C, 21st century church, and I think, on some level, aren't we there? We've allowed ourselves to be distracted by the enemy, to focus and fight and think about the things that, that on some level really don't matter, and we've forgotten the message of the cross. Redemption in life in Jesus Christ. Agreement in the church on that can be attained. But each of us has to come face to face with the truth of Jesus Christ and be willing to surrender our lives to that. See, redemption in the church comes not when that other group finally figures it out. But when redemption in the church comes when we come face to face with our God and surrender our lives. As a church, we, here in this place, we want to remember that our call is the message of the cross. Life and redemption in Jesus Christ alone. And that much like the first century church, we can quickly become distracted with those things on the side. Maybe it's time for some of us in this place, including myself, to to come humbly before our God and ask just to see the truth in the message of the cross to walk away from the things on the side and say, God, I just want to know you and I just want the world to see you. And I know it sounds simplistic and I know it sounds, you know, idealistic, but the truth is, it's doable. The church needs to quit preaching tolerance 
and start preaching gospel. And that's where we as a community need to gather, at the message of the cross. Because to the world, that message of life and redemption in Jesus Christ is craziness. But to those of us that have experienced it, it is the very power of God. And that is what Paul is calling the first century church to. To remember the power of the God that saved you. And for some of us, that's the wake-up call that we might need this morning. To remember the power of the God that saved me. And am I living that to the world? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. We thank you that you love us and care for us. And God, we thank you that as a church, we recognize that we're not perfect. That we've got all kinds of issues and flaws and stuff. But God, correct our line of thinking. God, challenge us to not focus on trying to be right and instead focus us on trying to find you. Shift the church from, from that of tolerance, God, to that of gospel. And push us in a direction that says, God, I just want to see you in my life. And I want to reflect that to the world. God, we pray that you would move in us as we leave from this place. And as we stand here amongst and we celebrate together and worship you, that we might see you in a new, fresh, and exciting way. A church that's focused on the power and the message of the cross. Redemption in life in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.